Climactic, the voice of the people on climate change. This week, we have an interview with a climate activist. Climate activist, eh? So should we expect Che Guevara with a bandolier full of bananas and seeds and a hemp berry? No, not at all. It couldn't be further from the truth with this guest. But, right. but honestly, Rich, before we started doing this show, when I started talking to people, my mental image of a climate activist was something much closer to that than what this guest actually looks like. Yeah, it's been an education for both of us, hasn't it, mate? We've learned a lot talking to people, various types of people who are fighting climate change in their own way. And climate activists come in many shapes, sizes, backgrounds, ages and locations. That's right. And they're all united with the desire for a better world. That's the common denominator between all of them. Okay, Mark, so what's this interview about? Well, before I tell you what it's about, I'll tell you how I met Doug. I met him not long after I moved to Melbourne. And I was actually his waiter at a restaurant I was working at. He was wearing an Apple t-shirt. And naturally, if you know me, that meant I just had to start a conversation with him. And we got talking. Absolutely. And speaking of talking, it sounds like you can talk to Doug for hours. Can you tell the listeners how long the recording went before we did the editing? This is you trying to shame me, yeah. <laughs> Rich. Uh, the recording was nearly two hours long. And it went on much longer off mic as well. But... For the sake of respecting everyone's time and your time and doing the edit, Rich, <laughs> this is just the best 50 minutes, okay. and it really is an inspiring story. So much so, in fact, that talking to Doug uh, really was an important moment in me starting to take responsibility for my own sustainability. So Doug's a climate activist and had a powerful impact on your life, obviously, Mark. But you said before you didn't think he was an activist when you first met him. No, not at all. I wouldn't have any idea in the world. I thought he was just a normal guy. Not that climate activists aren't normal people, mm. but granted, here was this normal-seeming person with a great accent, family man, just going about his life. But little did I know, he was spending his nights and weekends for months on end fighting climate battles against destructive and polluting activities happening in his own backyard. Wow. So you're saying that anyone we meet could be a secret activist by night. We wouldn't even know it. That's right. Okay, shocked and stunned. Shocked and stunned. Well, it does make him sound like a superhero. And uh, and don't tell him this, but that's kind of how I see him. <laughs> All right. Well, I can't wait to hear this. And I can't wait to have you listen. So here we go with a chat with Dougal Holmes. All right. So... Thanks for sitting down with me, Doug. That's you. Cool, Mark. <laughs> you indirectly, not sure if you want to take credit for this or not, you pretty much single-handedly inspired me to do this show. <laughs> maybe indirectly, maybe not. Right. I don't know. Yeah, no, I know we had some pretty deep chats, especially when we were driving back from startup events. Absolutely. And we got deep on yeah, what was going on and how it was all going to play out. Yeah, and I remember us not being very optimistic at the time. No, and I was telling you about my challenges because at Apple we had trouble with people recycling and separating streams, and it all started there for me, and then I'm trying to do it in the current company as well. Yeah. 
when you see it all sort of there for you. So mm-hmm. what what the show really is, it's, it's chats with normal people about sort of their mentality, how they find it in them to care about these things that are, yeah, mm-hmm. so far outside of ourselves, but it's all the results of our little actions yep. that all add up to this it stuff. It does all add up. So it's, it's on one hand, it's taking responsibility for all the things we have to, to avoid things we don't want to have happen. All our negative end of the world chats. If we don't want that to happen, we do want a lot more. But then, yeah, I remember because you said, "Oh, you know that chat that's really heavy," and we started going, "Oh my god, yeah, where have we gone? We've gone down <laughs> the rabbit warren, and we better pull ourselves back out." And I heard your little intro that you did the other day on the other um, podcast talking about, "Yes, we've got to do something," or you felt like you can do a podcast. You've got the technology and the know-how, mm-hmm. so just get on with it. And that yep. was that's kind of cool. That was inspirational to me because I haven't done a podcast yet. Oh, well, there you says, go. First everyone time. says, hey, yeah, you should talk about all the battles you've had in defeating these nasty carbon-emitting power stations and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I've yeah, done my big stuff, and then I'm trying to separate my waist strings as well and do my little stuff. That's right. Well, we, we can get into all of that and mm-hmm. sort of yeah, how you, you keep fighting that fight. So can I just ask, just straight off the bat, wh- where did you get started with this? Did you grow up with a climate sort of mindset? Were you aware of environmental issues growing up? So Yes. So I remember distinctly as a teenager watching News Round, which was a new show the BBC did, which was for kids to distill the issues of the day and put it in their language. And the one that stuck out for me was the ozone hole. So mm. up in Europe, we knew that there was a hole opening up in the sky and it was letting radiation in and we were all going to burn. And that led Pretty to the vivid whole, for yeah, I mean, you're like, oh my God, the world's falling in. But the answer was to ban CFC mm-hmm. and to learn, well, what is a chlorofluorocarbon or whatever it stood for. Yep. So I do a chlorine and, and things like that, bad mm-hmm. gases, as I've, as I've since learned. And I remember us all having to do our bit. And then there was monumental shifts in industry to do away with CFC that was in hairspray. So I remember my mum talking about that. Yes. And my dad in the fridge. And so there was just a natural requirement to turn everything over and get rid of this stuff and move to other um, propellants, which we've done. Yes. So that was it, really. The genesis for me was, wow, the ozone, I remember distinctly. And I think the way they positioned it was, you know, here's the problem. So, you know, the situation, what's going on, then the pathway to fix that, and then governments running behind mm. it, people running behind it, because it was going to take some time, obviously, for the turnover of fridges, for example, to then be you know newer ones with different you know, gases for chilling. So it was kind of a you know getting those companies as well to turn away from CFC and hairsprays. You had to get all of the Procter and Gambles and the big guys at the top end of town all had to be convinced because yeah. probably CFC was cheap, right, as a propellant, and it was probably a huge effort and cost to switch. Yeah, there was there was already the supply chain. So like even even if there's a propellant that costs a little bit more, the cost to change over would have been massive, mm-hmm. but the public will was there and it, and it happened. I think, yeah, the public obviously, and the fact that I'd seen a show as a kid and we were aware of it at school, so just like my kids go and learn about climate change now, as mm-hmm. we call it global warming, because mm-hmm. you know the, the first thing we knew about was, well, if you open up an ozone hole, a lot more radiation, we're all going to heat up. So, of course, I still resonate with the term global warming. The ozone hole issue was resolved. There was massive action. It was worldwide. It happened. And you went on with your life. Yeah, and if you go and check out Wikipedia or whatever, it'll probably tell you the whole sort of timeline that that happened. But, of course, it was just a thing that became needed to be done. Yep. Everyone was on board. I don't remember what that turning point was other than just being aware of updates happening in the news. Mm-hmm. And so there must have been an awareness campaign being run by someone, mm-hmm. and it may have been activists like I became later on going, well, you know, someone's got to speak up. Otherwise, yep. governments keep don't cycle. shift. And governments have put their bias, so we let them to be in their position. Mm-hmm. But they won't do anything unless you also then give them direction of what to do. Yep. 
Otherwise, they just sit around in their office and mm-hmm. don't realize it's going to be something that we need to tackle. And they're always asked to vote. So yes. They're, so they're, they're just driven by popularity contests these days, especially here in Australia. So you turn around and say to them, I'm not going to vote for you unless you do something. And ultimately, that's how we influence like the ACT Greens. If you're going to ask me about why am I an activist, so this is interesting from my, right, for, for so from my point of view of looking back as to why I became an activist later on in life to say I can fight against some of these things that I don't agree with that are going to impact my air quality. I came across a school project the other day, really funny. I was going through a box of keepsakes. I don't know why, but in there was a project that I did that was to fight against a big um, central through road they wanted to build Nepsum where I was living with my parents and my mum at the time because my grandfather had been an activist trying to save trees uh, and you know, in touch with the countryside right yes yeah, so you go back to my grandfather on my maternal side and my mum said to me oh do you want to do a school project about how this is going to cut the town in half so <laughs> literally it was going to be like a, a, what do they call it a, a the bypass road. Yes. And it was going to be like a four-lane highway, two lanes each way. And we actually walked across where this road was going to be for our access from where we lived into the centre of town to go shopping. And we used to like to walk down and go and see the local butcher, mm-hmm. baker, all that sort all of stuff. Feel. Traditional village town feel before the massive mega centres from the supermarkets came in and everyone started jumping in cars to go shopping, which was mad to us, right? Yeah. So anyway, this road was going to go in and we fought against it on a number of fronts. And it was the council at the time wanted to make a bucket load of money from private sector to build the road. So mm-hmm. there was a financial driver for them. Mm-hmm. And these councillors, we looked at it from the point of view of they're there only in a temporary period of time. Mm-hmm. And then they'll move on and they'll be gone. But the damage they leave behind will be massive. So we mm-hmm. fought to save a specific parkland and area of trees where this was going to go. And I remember standing on the street and interviewing people and saying, do you care about this issue? And so it was like my sixth form project. So for me, that would have been when I was approaching, what, 16, 17 years old. So this is about 86, 87. And I was looking, or a bit later than that, but I was looking at the point of view of if you do this, there's no turning back. So I was literally speaking to strange adults in the street with my mum's permission and yes. <laughs> saying, do you know what this looks like? And I had the plans and people were had heard about it because it had been in the newspaper, but they hadn't taken time to go and no, check out the blueprints. The public prints. information segment was... And we didn't have the internet back then, no. right? So it wasn't like you go, oh, go and click on the website that says no link road. Yep. There was nothing like that around. Yep. So it was, age. it was some school kid doing a project, doing canvassing and interviewing on the street, putting this data point together saying most of the people here think this is crazy and taking that back to the council. Mm-hmm. The project was abandoned. So I achieved what I set out to achieve, which was a huge win, and that bolstered me for later life to think, okay, some individual on the street spreading awareness to others can shift away from something bad happening. The genesis in Canberra for me, there was this guy called Richard who had done a letterbox drop in our suburb and he had said, wake up everybody, there's this gas-fired power station going in into the horse paddocks behind where we lived. That's what got Um, onto a letterbox drop. It was literally a letterbox drop and the stat that he had put on there was something like the volume of exhaust from the gas turbines they were going to build was going to be something like, I I, I have to get the number, we have to edit this out. Shocking stat. It was at least the volume of 50 Olympic swimming pools, mm-hmm. or it might have been 500 or 5,000. The number, I think, was just so in my face that it was a data point that I went, that doesn't sound right. That, that just, <laughs> that's just mad. 
Then we go and look into these turbines, and I started researching them, and they were from Caterpillar, the big construction company that do the, the, the excavators. So there's a huge manufacturing base in the city in China where I was at, actually. Well, there we go. Yeah. So what they do is they create what they call a gen set, a generator set that mm-hmm. burns diesel to provide power out there on oil rigs. Yes. On oil rigs, you've got gas because they're extracting oil and natural gas. So naturally, they started building gas-fired turbines. They put a turbine on a rig or a range of them, and they pump gas through them that they're extracting from the ground, and that provides all the power to then sustain the operation. Yeah, which which is great in theory because you're getting free energy. Free. Yeah, while extracting yeah. it, you're powering something. <laughs> exactly. So for yeah. them, from economies of scale, they haven't oh, got to pay for power to yeah. run the operation. Meantime, all they're doing is pumping out exhaust into the atmosphere. Yeah. So are they filtering that gas? Um, are they out in the middle of the sea just going, no, it's fine, just pump all that crap in the air. We don't need to worry about it. That's right. Um, meantime, sponge. you and I are driving our cars from what they're extracting by doing all that. Mm-hmm. So I looked into what these turbines were, and they were monsters. You know, the Titan turbines that they have, I was getting data sheets on these things and reading about how much energy it uses per hour to run. Mm-hmm. So the government, in partnership with Singapore Power, who own half of the um, ACT government's utility company. And the government ultimately were on board and pushing this project that was going to stick nine of these giant gas turbines in the paddocks to power a data center. Sounds like an innocent project in IT oh, terms. Totally. Yeah. Normally you run that off of the grid and the grid screws up and that grid power can come from a mixture of sources and through renewable. These guys wanted to flip the entire model and go with gas-fired turbines as primary source for the data center, Mm -hmm. the grid as backup. Which is is no backup. Which is crazy. So the model they wanted to flip was because if we plug a data center into gas-fired turbine generators, and as long as the gas is flowing, Mm -hmm. they could generate a a much more dense unit of electricity unit for the racks in the data center Mm -hmm. and put more blades in. So it was about driving for economies of scale, masses more computing equipment into the data center, requiring more cooling that again in turn would be powered by the turbines. So the turbines were just a self-fulfilling prophecy of energy use to drive the computers and the cooling systems and everything else to run this data center. And so the government were like, brilliant, we'll get a data center that will allow us to stick our servers in there because they were looking for a, a co-host. <clears throat> and at the same time, we'll get a peaking power station. So while the data center is humming along, we'll then fire up more turbines when needed and pump up the grid in the ACT and start selling it to the public on, oh, this, this is here for powering homes. So quick question. These turbines, the technology for them was developed for the oil rigs, kind of perfected yeah. there, so they figured... Caterpillar, whatever the manufacturer was like, we've got this technology, we can sell it elsewhere. Let's put it in the suburbs of Canberra to power this data center. <laughs> so the natural gas is getting to the generator by truck, by pipeline. We put it up in a natural gas pipeline. pipeline. So they were going to be taking pipeline it from... to the suburbs. <laughs> exactly. The Perfect. pipeline that they were going to run in was coming from the eastern seaboard of Australia. So they're going to bring the gas from offshore... Having brought it from these rigs, as you say, powered by the Titan Caterpillars out there, bring all that um, gas on the eastern pipeline into Canberra and then burn it again in those turbines to run the data center. Yeah, and, and this only sounds ridiculous because we're talking about it. And we, you only realize it's ridiculous because you talk about it, but really this is how pretty much every power project constructed up to this point is built. Every power project has a fuel source coming from somewhere. There, there was no equation in there where they were looking back to say, what is the carbon hit of getting it out of the ground in the oil fields yeah. and getting it all the way inland into like the center of Australia to burn off. This is like economists are only looking at top line figures. They're only looking at net figures. 
they would look at the site within the fencing. They would say, yeah. you know, here's the site, and if you take a data center that normally uses this much power, by using these turbines sitting here, we're only going to be this, which is better. Yep. So it literally That's takes it as an isolated. Yep. So then on the emissions, they said, this is what the turbines produce. So they mm -hmm. were open with the figures, and we started looking into that, but we realized it was NOx, you know, nitrous oxides. Mm -hmm. You've then got all of the other stuff you can think of, like particulate matter 10, which your mm -hmm. lungs can filter, mm -hmm. and particulate matter 2.5 that your lungs cannot filter. Nope. Straight, straight through, through your lung Straight membranes. into your bloodstream, yeah. right? And impacting all sorts of nervous systems in the body, and that's becoming a big issue for everywhere. It's why diesel's getting banned in Europe. Yes. So PM2.5 is the awakening. The body can't stop or process these particles. You're just stuffed. That's right. So we looked at the PM2.5, the PM10, the, not the sulfur, the nitrous, mm -hmm. everything that comes out of burning this gas. And I had friends who have kids that are asthmatic. My son Thomas is asthmatic. Mm -hmm. We moved from Sydney to Canberra to get away from the smog in Sydney that was impacting him. Mm -hmm. He literally lived near a main road, and we knew that he was getting sick regularly. Yep. We moved to Canberra, it got a lot better, and we were suddenly facing, and that sort of raw protectionism that comes from being a parent, this is no good. You know, mm -hmm. this thing's going to go in. Now, it's going to impact Thomas, but it's also going to impact my friends that also lived on the other side that I became aware of. They're the ones that did the letterbox drop. Mm -hmm. And then we started talking to other people in the community who had asthmatic kids or they were asthmatic themselves. And the whole thing kicked off to the point that the government commissioned an environmental impact statement that we've been calling for. And then on top of that, a health impact assessment. And that was because enough of us got together that 600 people rocked up to a meeting and said, we are all concerned for our health. Mm -hmm. We don't have heavy industry in Canberra. This was going to be heavy industry out of nowhere, plopped down in the middle of a paddock, endorsed and blessed by the state government and its power utility company. You're listening to Climactic, the voice of the people on climate change. I'm talking to friend and climate activist Dougald Holmes about his battle, or should I say war, with giant gas power companies looking to set up a massive polluting power station in the heart of the ACT. Mm, yeah, a bit of a cliffhanger there, mate. The ACT government, a Singaporean power company, business, intrigue, natural gas generators. It's really edge-of-the-seat stuff. I mean, what's going to happen next? Well, I'm going to keep you and the listeners in suspense just one moment longer, because first, we want to let you know what you can expect next week. It's our Waste Special, the first of our monthly audio magazine episodes. Waste? How can that be interesting? Well, when we're talking international business, soil depletion, council budget blowouts, and how it affects us in the community. More specifically, we're going to look at how China's decision to change the rules on accepting our recycling is having an impact on our local communities. Yes, waste is the byproduct of everything we produce and everything we consume. And properly treated, it's the death of sea life, it's plastic in our food and even plastic mm. in our water. Yeah. And a lot of that waste can be used to create entirely new things or maybe never even be made in the first place. Okay, you sold me. So what do people have to do to hear this special? That's the best part, Rich. Nothing. It'll right. be in your feed right here, same place, same time, Thursday morning, the 17th of May. Just be prepared for it to be a bit bigger. A bit fuller. And 100% recyclable. So in the spirit of our waste special, here's Doug's perspective on waste. Then we get back into the drama of being a climate activist. You know, when I 
then sort of was aware about my dad separating out our recycling. So quite early on in the UK, they were giving us curbside different tubs to separate out. I think it was even like um, coloured glass, maybe even like green glass was separate to to clear glass. Mm -hmm. And there was only limited things that they would recycle. Um, So there was like newspaper and there was glass. So there wasn't really cans initially. And mm-hmm. then, of course, there must have been evolution around recycling technologies that allowed aluminium and steel and everything else to be recovered. Mm-hmm. And then I remember, I think they gave us a tub that was a mixed waste stream. So they must have put in a MRF, you know, some kind of recovery facility that was able to then strip those out. And we started to recycle more and more. And it was kind of an incremental thing that happened. Mm-hmm. It was over years, but then it just became the norm. Yes. So I grew up with it. And now, you know, I teach my kids that. And... I teach my wife we can actually separate soft plastics. Nothing that they've ever done before, but mm-hmm. I can put the extra effort in in taking that out of the street, and that's another stream I'm helping to recover. That's right. I hope, because I don't know whether it's actually ending up. So, yeah, my challenge to you is how do you get those big end of town to confirm what they're doing? Because I go down to the shopping centre and I see Viola, massive global company. Their logo I suddenly recognize, and I recognize it because I was looking into the incinerator facility near the Thames in London mm-hmm. because that is burning the waste. It's an incinerator, right? They mm-hmm. call it an energy recovery facility. It's a nice way of dressing it up. Yep. Incinerators, burning trash, driving turbines ultimately from the heat, heating yep. water and steam. That's fine. But it's one of the most inefficient ways to generate electricity Absolutely. from an inductor or a, a turbine. You may as well just run it off of natural gas, and that would be way, way lower footprint. Mm-hmm. However, we're still left with the issue of what we do with our waste. Yep. So Viola was a name I became aware of when I started seeing it and noticing it in the shopping centers where I am here in Melbourne, and I've come from London where that was, and I was like, holy shit, this is the same company in two parts of the world, as far apart as you can get from my homeland to where I now live, and they're, they're just owning this stuff everywhere. Absolutely. And then I became in Canberra, I became aware of JJ Richards. Mm-hmm. They're another big one, and they do all of the waste for Queanbeyan across the border in New South Wales. Mm-hmm. So you're talking cross border issues because New South Wales started trying to introduce the proximity principle, which is that your waste should be sourced and processed as near to where it originated in the first place, mm-hmm. a bit like food miles. Yes, it's, it's decreasing that transport element. Yeah. And I was hearing about these guys, I know it's JJ Richards specifically, but Ian Maloof and Dala Dump, these guys were just shipping waste out of New South Wales by train because mm-hmm. it gets around this proximity law that apparently only applies to like road transport. And so they're from a railhead, they're just sending waste interstate train. and it's out of my hair. It's, out, it's not my problem anymore. It's gone across border. And we started getting into that discussion in Canberra because they were pitching another incinerator there with a railhead and saying that, oh, if we can't actually recover the materials, we'll end up just shipping them off again to, say, Woodlawn. So cross-border mm-hmm. into New South Wales from a rail terminal. So at the end of the day, everyone's in it just for their own little piece of action yep. and just ends up shipping the rest off as far away as possible. Mm-hmm. And, you you, know, you forget about it. You don't know where it's gone. Absolutely. So I think we, ask, we need to ask more questions. Yep. Where yes. is it going? What are these companies doing? You are trusting them, and yet you don't know whether they're doing what you think they're yeah. doing. And because they don't have a lot of transparency around them, they're acting probably in a responsible way financially. They're saving costs wherever they can. They're maximizing their profits for their shareholders. But if the transparency was there, we <clears throat> wouldn't give them contracts. The secondary problem is we're not funding them in the right way. Yes. So, um, yeah, the way that the government is legislating for landfill fees and they're trying to avoid that, that's then driving them 
to take the material somewhere else like an incinerator. Yes. And they go, oh, win-win, right? You get to avoid landfill fees. So therefore, anyone who's collecting waste like JJ Richards in the street is quite happy to hand it over to the incinerator operators. So there's this huge push, especially with the China freeze on recycling, to say, no worry, we'll just put incinerators in and burn the stuff. It gets rid of the problem. They disappear. Yeah, get, But to me, that's just landfill and recycling material redirected into the sky. Yes. Huge environmental right. hit. It has got no concern for the planet or what's right, especially if the stuff when it gets buried is actually inert for yes. hundreds or thousands of years. I know that's also a bad thing. Yes, but it's a but less what is, immediate problem. Yeah, what is the lesser evil right now? That's right. Yeah, that's a really big debate we need to have in Australia because that's facing us right now. When I bump into people and I pitch this stuff from my understanding where I understand the six codes of plastics from PET through to polypropylene and polystyrene and I got to learn all this stuff about what can actually be used for um, how can different forms be processed in different ways and some companies just write stuff off and say like for example the soft plastics nope too hard can't be bothered because it would jam machines up you know mm-hmm. machinery so cling wrap mm-hmm. and stuff like that and yet there's a company called Plastic Forests who've mm-hmm. actually developed their own techniques to handle that plastic film and to turn it into bollards and the seats you see in school playgrounds where you know the plastic planks are made from soft plastic material. Mm-hmm. So there are companies doing it. It's just, I guess, their feed and the awareness, all these other companies who are going too hard will just bury that stuff. Yeah. They aren't interested the other company picking up the source material isn't interested in separating to that degree they want to get their hands on pet you know clear mm-hmm. plastic bottles which are the highest value for recycling into clothing fibers and other mm-hmm. and they will just ditch the rest they just want yeah. to strip that out and they don't have really any incentive to sort out the other secondary streams it really becomes an auditing task where we need to say all right you've picked up how many x tons of waste this year and you've landfilled how many x tons Hmm. We know that within that stream, there are these other commercial applications for it and these companies who would tender for it. <clears throat> That's so a great point. Why is that not happening? Yeah, the great point you raise is measuring it. And the interesting thing for us when we looked at the proposed incinerator and other nasty processes like turning plastics into diesel to yes. burn off in the buses, um, the answer was there was not real waste data available from the ACT governments who did not have that data to even tell the industry players, oh, by the way, this is what you'll be dealing with. So they're almost pitching blindly and going, well, if you guys don't care, if at a government level you don't care about actually measuring the volumes, mm-hmm. then we can just take you for a ride. Just give mm-hmm. it all. Just hilarious they don't know because every company selling the good in the first place with the packaging mm-hmm. knows what they sell down yeah, exactly. to the unit. Yeah, because you're, you're paying for that. That's material cost in mm-hmm. your supply chain. Mm-hmm. And then you just pass it on. I mean, as you know, it's just it's, it's there. It's in the shops. It's yep. in stuff you receive. Your shopping bag mail. home. Your plastic shopping bag and a third of the volume of what you <clears throat> bought is packaging. Yeah, so on that point, I know personally I've got a general feel and a vibe that we've taken our home bin from you know being like two bag loads a week mm-hmm. down to probably three quarters of a bag. And so a lot of mm-hmm. that is the soft plastics coming out, which of course a lot of it is voluminous that, that takes up space and air. Yep. When you actually strip that out, squeeze the air out and take it back and drop it off at the um, deposit the, bins, the, the volume yep. is, is mainly air in amongst all this packaging stuff. Well, Doug, you, you, you know your stuff about this, and I want to get into why you know it so well. This is mm-hmm. information you've you've learned over years of actually fighting campaigns that are in your backyard. Before yeah. I get there, 
I have, <laughs> like, I've, I've asked you what was your, your moment and, you know, you grew up with this stuff in the UK. Yeah. But then you went off and you had your career and you just sort of lived a, a, a normal life kind of away from the environmental side. You're working at a yep. software company. Then you're working at that Californian fruit company. You cannot name it if you don't want to. Apple. Um, yes. I was yeah. working at Apple. <laughs> That's the one. Who are very environmentally sustainable. So that was just reiterating in a commercial sense, a company I was working for and believing in everything they do around Earth Day, everything they do against electrical offsets, you building their massive solar farms. So the company is something like 98% green on its energy now, and it's that last 2% that's striving for taking so much effort. Just, just me being able to quibble with that. Yeah, but they don't do their own manufacturing. They're 98% renewable on their data centers and on their retail arm and maybe on the, uh, their offices. But that's, that's the only thing that Apple does. So yeah, they, they account for it in the global picture. So if you wanted to challenge those figures, you'd have to say, are Foxconn, their manufacturing partners in China, honoring the requirements Apple put on them? And Apple are very stringent and know that they could be pulled up by their shareholders, mm-hmm. which, as you say, the company operating for their shareholders. Yep. Ultimately, if they're caught out, then that breaks the trust that the public has with the company from its recycling. From the, cynic like me. Yeah, from the recycling programs in the store as to how they break down and take back old pieces of hardware and mm-hmm. do it in a, a totally responsible way. Versus people just dropping it off at any waste at the tip and who knows where it goes. So when I was working for Novell and I was traveling the world, I myself personally signed up to a company that started in Australia called Easy Being Green. And they, I became aware of them because they were jumping on the bandwagon with the government offering rebates for switching out your light globes. So you take your uh, light yeah. globe and you go to Compact Fluoro yeah. and therefore there are the energy savings and all the electricity utility companies were in the shopping malls at the weekend going, here you go, here's a six pack of globes, stick them in at home. And there was this huge shift to try and get off of, you know, tungsten filament. Mm-hmm. The irony being that all the globes that you were sticking in were made in China, had just been shipped over on a ship from China. Yeah. All the raw material, there was no integrity around the supply chain of these no. globes you were sticking in in your the home. Are coming from or- and you're then throwing away perfectly good tungsten globes that could continue running for some time. You weren't waiting for them to blow. You were proactively switching out. Now that ultimately, like the economic stimulus the government did a number of years ago, and everyone bought big flat screen TVs, mm-hmm. which the money ultimately funnels back to the supply chain and the manufacturing in China. We were all enjoying our nice flat screen tellies and it stimulated the economy, mm-hmm. but it wasn't spending the money back into directly our economy locally. That's right. And it wasn't so, developing our infrastructure and our means to be a more sustainable place. We were simply consuming less power per inch of television that's it and and so ironically so easy being green was a way for me to say right i'm a global executive i'm jumping on planes i'm flying around i want to offset my carbon footprint Mm -hmm. and they gave you the calculators and tools and were one of the first companies that went from doing the globe replacement program for Mm -hmm. the energy credits from the government and they were all cashing in at a federal level and that helped them obviously sustain their business models but i signed up and paid for an annual program based on a number of flights or a certain case of travel and that then allowed me to feel like I was offsetting my footprint. Mm-hmm. And that was totally off my own back. company didn't pay for it. Mm-hmm. That was just me going, this is just the right thing to do. And again, it might be the upbringing that just led me to go and find a company and pay attention that it was more than just the light waves. So I worked, started working for Novell in 98 and I'd come over here to Sydney and then I was obviously traveling around mm-hmm. Asia and then over to the US. And that's when I became aware that, yes, I must be tied up with this footprint stuff, but only because I guess I probably saw an inconvenient truth around the same time. Yeah. That was early 2000s with Al Gore mm-hmm. and going, oh, wow, there's messaging in here that everyone really should pep up and look into. Yeah. 
notwithstanding here we are today i'm 44 and in my lifetime the global population has doubled from like 3.7 billion to 7.4 or some stupid number i can't get my head around that's right that yeah, just 7. keeps 4. just keeps motoring and i'm like wow that's only only in 40 odd years of of my life that's right that is just insane <laughs> and so if you carry on going the same way making the same mistakes in every country that's developing as we did through the industrial revolution we will just compound the issue again and again and again. The swimming pool metaphor you said really got to you. you know, it was some way that sort of a an understandable representation of the output. So it was a volume, and I don't know whether that, that at that time wasn't about the health impacts so or what gases mm-hmm. in volume that wouldn't impact your lungs. Yep. It was more about the volume of CO2 exhaust coming out, and that played to my raw global warming route, maybe out of a justification for why I spent so much energy on it for the year. Yeah to the point that it really strained our marriage because we were going to lobby the government at meetings, including yeah. their launch of their election campaign. Yeah. Um, there were just, you know, there were meetings that we held once a week to keep the public informed where we had to assemble the media coverage for the week, like a bit of media watch. So I was, you know, recording stuff off the TV, getting the um, newspapers, scanning, putting all this content together to keep people informed because there was this really strong community group that had come together and we were well organized because we had people like myself and others that could spend the time to keep an eye on what was going on. So when we pulled all that together, that took time. And, and that took me away from my family. And my kids back then were super young. So back in 2008, 10 years ago, my daughter was one, my son was two mm-hmm. uh, or three. Mm-hmm. So you look back to that, and this is a decade ago, just reflecting on that, suddenly realizing we're talking we're in 2018. Yep. This was 2008. So looking back, it's vivid memories of yesterday of the strain it caused Mm -hmm. and my conflict with I need to do something about this and I need to help drive this group although I feel if I step away it might slow down and not see it through to conclusion yeah the flip side of that is it did reach its conclusion which is the project buggered off very good and it was my first win well could you describe the feeling of that win it was really interesting. We met with the business correspondent at the Canberra Times saying, you must be really happy. And he met us and had a group of us in the city talking through what had happened. And we we were still so shocked or at, at the effort that had gone against us to shut us down that we thought they would be back and would do it again. Mm-hmm. So we looking back now, 10 years later, it was closure of the issue, but we couldn't see that at the time. It's still in the trenches. So we have celebrated since. Good. Um, which took a long time for the group. We all sort of stood down just to keep an eye on what's going on. Yeah. Yes. Went into a sleeper mode is the way I think we put it. The community group has been present and active ever since and keeping an eye and then sparked up for the next two issues we've just been fighting recently. I see if I was a good interviewer and like, oh, see what I can do in the edit, but I'd be like, so like, you know, how people were involved. How many <laughs> hours do you reckon a week you were spending doing this? And at the end of it, could, could you imagine having the energy to do it again? And then you'd be like, yeah, two more times. Um, good the point. thrilling climax. <clears throat> to your, yeah, to your point, Mark, if I was to look right now and go, didn't realize we'd have to fight that as much as we did. And mm-hmm. so we thought the work effort would be less. But the people that came together to fight it, you unfortunately find you have a few standouts. It's a bit like cycling at the front of the pack in the Tour de France. Ultimately, people get busy or switch focus, don't see it through, mm-hmm. and then the whole thing just collapses. And that may have even avoided the situation cameras in right now with not being able to process its waste and it's going out offshore. And yeah, just like every other state. But I mean, we kind of yeah. We, I don't know. If the little I know already, it seems like quite easy in the environmental space to look at ACT. Like yeah, 
If anyone can do it, they can. And even if they have As a case study, yeah, yeah, because they set out to try and do it in 96, it's a good case study because mm-hmm. I went and found all this stuff and I dug into it. And the other classic was finding that in the 1950s or 60s, they had an electric bus in Canberra, mm-hmm. a trial project of electric buses. So we are right now on the cusp of Tesla and the trucks and everything else. We're talking 50, 50 to 60 years ago, they had the chance to go with electric fleet. Mm-hmm. Maybe the tech around the batteries or charging, whatever, was, was weak. I don't know. But they were trialing that and decided to go with diesel buses. The worst, as we now know. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the interim, they went to natural gas buses. Again, so they're just loading up gas and running with liquid pure gas. So, no, I did not think I would end up fighting round two, which was plastics to diesel, and round three, which is an incinerator. Would you would you be up for round four if it was something in your backyard? If all those same cords got plucked again? I think I'll just call it lucky three. Third time lucky, <laughs> right? I think at that point, someone else has to step up because yeah. we're talking a decade of my life. That's right. So that's a quarter of my life. And so for somebody else to step up, I'm hoping that there are young ones that I'm impressing who will do the same thing I did. Mm-hmm. It's about time somebody else back in their, starting their thirties went, you know what? Well, it's my turn to have a bit of a fight like those guys. So what I want to leave is the legacy that inspires them to know they can. Yes. Yeah. It's good. As long as you're happy sort of telling these stories and passing on your advice. And then there's you. You're in your twenties. Yeah. 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 So here I'm, we are I'm sorry, chatting. 10 years later than you. So this is the funny thing, because you said this kind of inspired you to start the podcast. Mm -hmm. So me even talking to you, I feel like I'm doing my bit to share a story that will help you do it through this way, through this medium, and or otherwise. Yeah, you're definitely going to do more than just the show, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, how are you finding climate change? I'm talking about it. Mm. Could you you do something a bit more then, Mark? Oh, well. So what I did was put the three websites back. So for all three projects, whereas before... We kind of rolled one website out the way and put another one back up. And someone recently said, oh, I'm finding something weird when I hit the web server under the new domains we were setting up for the new fight. So nocamberincinerator.com. We had the no plastics um, to fuel and we had no power station. So we own nopowerstation.com. Because if you think back 10 years ago, no one else was registering that domain. It, was, it sounds like an obvious domain for anyone to fight that. Sure does. We still own it. So... It was like no power station, no plastics to fuel, no incinerator. Straight, clear messages in the yeah. URL itself. Didn't even go .com.au to localize it to Australia because we knew that although it was a project in Australia, it would be applicable on the global market. Mm-hmm. And we knew we were onto something when one of the internet archives was asking us for permission to be catalogued after we won the first fight against the power station. And so they were pricking up their ears to community projects and wanted to keep it for prosperity. And it's not the Internet Archive, that one that's out there on the net. Mm-hmm. It's one of the ones that's specifically Pandora or something. I think it's the National Library of Australia's okay. web. I'll have to find out the reference for you. Yeah. So they actually curious. snapshotted the site yeah. with all of the media material coverage that we put up there. And that site was, you think, 10 years ago. We were lucky that I had the savvy because a lot of other people didn't. And mm-hmm. 10 years ago, we were able to put up a site that had – the media replay you know yes. it had the radio interviews and audio it had the tv yeah. programs and video which all we the information tell. you did yeah. you could literally go to that as one member of your family and find yes. all the right media messages convince all the members of your family and we were handing out flyers and someone jumping onto the campaign would just go and have an instant snapshot of everything and yeah. then there was these weekly meetings where we were doing the big powerpoint presentations showing everything that happened and people just came to soak up those meetings and that caused donations to roll in and fund the website and everything was kind of self-fulfilling Brilliant. But yeah, God, I have about 2008. 
you know, I don't know what other sort of sites were out there. We found difficulty going and finding sites for ourselves to put material together against this stuff. Mm-hmm. So we kind of just grew it out of grassroots. Now that needs to exist as it does for somebody else to come and pick up from and go. Yeah. 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 People use Facebook today. Yeah. I found people on, on Facebook doing similar things. We never really got savvy at that time 10 years ago with social media. This time around, we tried to do a bit of it, but you know, your mileage may vary because how, how are people going to find you in the first place? So the last fight was actually linking with other groups. So National Toxics Network and others saying, we've been battling ones in Perth in Western Australia for this long. And we're like, great, here's our issue. And they're actually jumping on and driving some of the stuff instead of us because for us to drive everything at this scale, where you're now talking waste industry, it's a different thing again to just nine generator sets in a field. Yes. Which is yes. an isolated a project. That's yeah. a project. And there's, there's gas in and gas out. And it's a simple little project. Yep. The complexities of the waste streams and how, and how is, is well beyond a small group working on their own. And that's why the businesses like to divide and conquer. But oh, yeah. the community groups are trying to sort of webify, connect across the world and yeah. come together and, refer- and leverage each other yeah. because then there's kind of a scale of power and we were finding out about projects over in the US that the Australian company were trying to refer to as references. They'd already been undermined in the planning systems overseas and bringing that information back here to say, no, you cannot rely on that project. It was specifically challenged or declined on these grounds and making that relevant back here within our law. Yes. And again, laws come into play and the difficulty and complexity of different laws in different countries. Yeah. Oh, well, it gets I can't get it. I, I go to mum and I can't get an answer, so I go to dad. So I try in the US and don't get it through there. I come to Australian capital territory in Australia because they're a Mickey Mouse government. And I can get it through <laughs> because they've got loopholes in their environmental protection laws. But those big groups need local community groups like you to validate what they're saying. Because if no one locally is actually saying, hey, we, we want these people here, we need their help. We want to oppose this. The government can just turn around to them and say, hey, you, you don't live here. You have no standing. Get out. Mm. So there need there always needs to be that partnership. So what you guys did in putting together that local group, even just by existing, even without having to drive it yourself, yeah. you're still doing a really big, important piece of work towards stopping Yeah, so it. we're seeding this time, we're seeding pieces of information out to third parties. Yep. Who are in turn are kind of, yeah, constructing a, a yeah. path back from their own influence. Yes. So it's not just one core group. So now, because you're now probably having to fight 20 companies or different yeah. um, arguments around waste, Multiple different ones, one, one, one group is talking about incinerators over here. Another is talking about municipal waste streams over there, commercial waste streams, the construction industry talking about when they, take a building down, so demolition waste or what they call light demo, what will they do with that waste? And that's mine shafts. Or and a bunch of it goes into the incinerator because you can burn the wooden frames of buildings, right? So it contains high calorific content. You wouldn't think that concrete tiles from roof burn. They burn brilliantly once you stick them in the incinerator at a high enough temperature. So they can literally just throw in commercial demolition waste and just burn it. I wish the expression on my face could make a sound. (laughs) Yeah, it's It's just like... It's like, I do not believe you. Anything will burn if you put the right temperature on it. First it turns to a liquid, then it turns into a gas. If you spend enough energy, you can convert anything else to energy. And that is the point, right? You have got to equate the energy in Mm -hmm. in order to turn around the output. And that's why this stuff is undermined by, say, a gas turbine just burning natural gas. The natural gas is extremely high calorific content, the highest, way higher than commercial waste. Yeah. Right? And... 
in a result then of what it does in producing energy through a turbine, it's way more efficient. Ironically, they're doing the same thing, but their source is crappy, low calorific content. And so your energy effort that you have to put in on top of that, mm-hmm. so you have to put more gas in, right, to get that bloody stuff to burn in the first place because it's virtually inert. It's crazy. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy that you're going to use more and more energy to keep the cycle going. We could just reduce the amount of waste you're producing in the first place. Recycle so, most of it. And yeah, fine. So there's the a team looking at FOGO, food and organic waste, and saying, yes. why isn't the FOGO stream separated out in the first place? Because if everything just goes into your general Consumers kitchen bin... Consumers like me are bad sometimes. Yeah, so if you separate uh, FOGO, there are processes where you can put it into barometric, you know, inert chambers where there's no oxygen and it breaks down and creates a biogas. Now that biogas, syngas, can come off and you can use that to then run a turbine. Mm-hmm. So there are ways to even handle organics. But to do so, you've got to have a government that provide a bin for food and organic waste. Mm-hmm. So there needs to be that stream that's available, but that only comes after you've got the information, the awareness, then people take action, and then you get a, a government that's responsive. Yeah, and, I, and so what we have found through fighting the incinerator is suddenly all these people come out that are experts in food and organic waste who are separate to the experts in plastic streams. Yes. And everyone kind of has their, their passion point in these industries. And at the basic level, they're saying, look, we just got to get food and organics out. So start with curbside. If you just have one big household bin, you are never going to get ahead. So Jerry, who we were chatting to, I don't know if you were going to refer to Jerry, but he yeah. was talking about the fact that they made the wrong call many years ago about having a combined bin. There should have been better source separation. And then we wouldn't be in the mess we're in today. Mm-hmm. And that's just a decade, two decades ago. 30 years ago, as a teenager, hearing that we've got global warming. Yep. Here I am 30 years later, hearing from people that are saying, damn, yeah, 10 to 20 years ago, we should have sorted this out. So they're just validating my my feeling that stuff really wasn't done as it should have been done. Now I'm aware of it, and I'm retrospectively looking back and going, yeah, that's that's what I remember. I don't remember us actually doing much about it. Yeah. Right yeah, so that's where, as I say, going back to my legacy. So you kind of have to find something to live for and fight for. Mm-hmm. So there was my family, which was the root issue of it all. Yeah. And also my dismay at the fact that stuff hadn't been done by others that I had watched as a kid. And you eventually take a look in the mirror and go, I'm the one that's got to do it. Mm-hmm. So I've got, a, a, I think, a good question for you. Then is, do you find it easier to motivate yourself to take action every day when you're fighting for an external cause, a group cause, community cause, or when you're fighting within your household for your personal sustainability, for your, yeah. It was the community cause. Yeah. That so for me. That was more motivating. For me, I can do so much on my own in my house. Yep. And then it ends. It plateaus. Yep. By getting the community sparked up and then the number of people kept growing and the number of awareness kept going up and media out there started showing interest, it's actually a buzz. Yes. There's a buzz. And so it drives you because you are seeing the impact that you and a fellow group are having on a wider group. Mm-hmm. And it's what everyone it's what everyone feeds off. You know, you go on Instagram and post a post for someone to like or you go onto Facebook and post a post so people can comment. And the bottom line is we're all driven by a wider net. So I've got my wife and my two kids love them, but at the end of the day, I was probably feeding more off of 100, 200, 400 people out there yep. hanging on for the next update to find out what had happened in the media that week or right. how what progress we had made in fighting the big guys. It's what makes people motivated to do something ultimately meaningless like Instagram. 
It's that same feedback loop. It's a powerful Which is thing. weird because yeah. if you use Instagram just for, hey, I've got a nice smile and just had my teeth whitened and everyone goes, yeah, fantastic. Well, here's a nice sunset. sunset. Yeah, cool. You're sharing a bit of nature and, and people are getting off on it. It's very different to using it for an activist cause and actually seeing impact that fights away, you know, the David and Goliath battle mm-hmm. and wins the battle and then actually says, you know what, that paddock is remaining a paddock and it's not a massive gas-fired power station. It's on the equivalent of 30 semis sitting there idling 24-7. Something like that. And the other thing is it's now a solar farm. So just in the neighboring paddocks, it's one of the largest solar farms around the area. It's called, I think it's called Mugger Way Solar Farm. It's a big conglomerate, I think, mainly funded by China. Yeah. They came along and they said, we want to cut the government subsidy. So after the government moved away from the gas-fired power station plans, as a result of our input, they went to solar. And so they built five solar power stations in Canberra. But I'm just talking about what I know here. Mm. So I've just relayed to you everything that I, I came from London Mm-hmm. This is what I did in, well, Sydney, I was kind of in that self-sustaining state of easy being green. Mm-hmm. And then Canberra, I was in the fight of my life against big transitional fuels being pitched as this is the anti-coal and so you've got to let gas go ahead. This is green, this is green. Mm-hmm. Which it's not. And then in, and then I ended up fighting the second round, which was the, the fuel, and now we've got incinerators. Just each time, it's another wave of another factor that's going, this is just business. We just want to set up a business using this stuff. And in our world, if you just look at our four walls, it all makes sense. Don't look at the bigger picture. This is just what I know here. There are other people like me having these battles in cities all around the world. And it's at a scale that needs to be thought of globally. You know what's really encouraging now? Is is that these people are out there. Yeah, they get their technology. They're pitching it. They're going for it like mad. The factors that are motivating them to work that hard toward it, toward it can be harnessed for good as well. So there's people right. out there selling solar like mad. Yes. And they're just thinking about the dollars and cents. That's right. all that motivates them. But God damn it, they're, they're doing well. There's solar being put in. You know, thousands there of is, instead day. of gas-fired turbines, yeah. because we were able to stay the gas for long enough mm-hmm. that the solar operator could get their foot in the door, mm-hmm. and then, bosh, there's a win for everybody. That's right. Right now, this is a rear guard action, because we've got China's blocked our waste. We need to know what to do with our waste. Right now, no one's got a recycling solution, really. We've, we've really got sequestration. We've got landfill. Yep. Put it in the ground, and we'll figure it out. Or we've got burn it. As soon as we got an option three, which is better, you won't have this fight anymore because it's obviously better. Yeah, and you listened to I was listening to a podcast the other day, and it was talking about yeah the cost. Was it the one that you guys did? But when solar ends up being the de facto because the costs and dynamics are there, then why would anybody? Because we're also driven by money, whether it's an individual level trying to save because we want save, you know, we're trying to stretch our money as far as we can go. Naturally, businesses are the same. As you said, the shareholders are saying, we demand you to be financially responsible and fiscal responsibility. So they go, why the hell would you not buy solar if that's the cheapest? So if you can make it that way and flip the dynamic, then, of course, the shareholders will jump on board and drive it. That's right. As soon as solar and the power wall, or not to be all brandy about it, but as soon as solar and battery-powered home. Yes, as soon as you have battery-powered home being the, default and most economical option, got a lot of other stuff goes away. 
Because the irony is I've got torches that run on batteries, right? That can light my home. Yeah. But the lights that light my home are actually, tra- you know, transformers stepping down 240 volts. And they're burning all the energy off as heat in the transformer just to lower it down and, and, and light my home. doesn't make sense. No. What do we, what do we lose? So, what? Like a sizable percentage is just transmission loss. Heat. In the system. And, and oh, it's, and we, we yeah, across... Nothing. Yeah. 20-30% on the cables or whatever that we we generate at source and by the time it gets to me and then I'm burning further off as heat just stepped down That's right. because downlights, you know, this isn't my house but downlights became a thing, right? Whereas you look back and there's probably other forms of lighting that run straight off of 240 that would be in a better situation. Maybe that was the compact floor over here. Or even this style, these downlights, what's wrong with lampshades? What's wrong with reflected light off the ceiling? As this is fashion. Warm in here this is fashion. Lights. You can't look up. You get blinded. Yeah. The fashion is to have downlights in the roof, right? All the new builds have got that, and they're dimmable, et cetera, et cetera. It's not fashionable. In the old up. days, I grew up with a, you know, a floor-standing lamp. As you mm-hmm. say, it would cast light upwards. That reflected, diffused light off of the ceiling would light the room. Mm-hmm. And you can end up with completely different lighting effects rather than harsh yeah. spots. And that comes down to companies that are pitching the latest show home mm-hmm. who are not – it's not fashionable. No, yeah, they don't think about who lives there. No, they're pitching a look, and people are buying into a look. And so, why why are we accepting that that's the best kind of lighting? Is probably the worst. Good question. Why do we accept a lot of things? We need to accept less. Yes. Question more. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what did your notes say? Oh, this is like my generic questions for people who are yeah. driven. Is yeah, right. It's like. Yeah, do, yeah, just do, a, just do you a, wish you were ignorant of climate change, or would you choose to know? This is the red pill, red pill, blue pill question. <laughs> no, yeah, well, that's stays the same. You just to your point of saying, do you go to the despair? Yeah, because I know what I know to a depth that I probably shouldn't, because I've done all the reading. Yeah, I'm Lind- contrary to Linda laughing about me knowing that I'm selecting a particular air purifier because it won't kill her through ozone production. Oh, that's a silly dog. Why would you know those things? <laughs> it is just like, I want to know. I'm intellectual and I soak this shit up and mm-hmm. I will get it from every source at every angle Feeds until I'm satisfied that I know yeah. enough. So if I've got all these tools at my fingertips, for me, it's about trying to assemble that in my own context. Yes. And then once I've got that, I'm making an educated decision. I think it's educated. It could be wrong, and someone will correct me later. But right now, I'm not finding somebody going head-to-head me challenging it otherwise. So that data point, which is that's the best one to get right now, is based on reading blogs of people in China saying, oh, my God, I live in the world's most polluted city, and this is the difference it's making to my life. I'm going, that's cool. Pretty good opinion to take. Yeah, so I will go to that source, and it may or may not be right in years to come, but right now that drives my decision so I can say that's good enough. Because otherwise, if I went to just a catalog on Amazon and picked a product, I could end up with a complete furphy. I've got no idea. That's right. And I'm not going to trust just a review that could be a thumbs up thumbs down gaming of a system but when I read a guy who's writing something and I believe his story because he's saying I am suffering every day and wearing masks on my way to work and so at home I took six units to test I'm giving you my raw unfiltered input and you read the way he's written it and you can tell it's like you or me chatting oh that was really good Doug thank you very much for that what an inspiration yeah it really was Uh, what was your main takeaway Rich well I guess the Big thing I took out of this interview was that Doug believed from his experience fighting his local council when he was a young boy that one person can make a difference, and not just a little bit, but a big difference. And you? For me, it's Doug's determination. 
and his resourcefulness. Yep. He beat a giant conglomerate. He beat a big company that had the full backing of the government, the state utility. That really inspired me, honestly, to start Climactic. And I'm yeah. so happy to get to share this story. To, uh, why I wanted to do this after talking to Doug was to tell these stories and inspire action for other people who care about the climate, just like his story inspired me. Well, if Doug ever makes it out to the central west of New South Wales, I'd really love to have a coffee or beer or both with him. Love to love to listen to him. Anyway, that's all. Thanks for listening, folks. Before we go, though, we'd like to thank some people. Absolutely. Greg Grassi, our amazing composer, thank you so much for this great new theme. Yes. Check him out at Chambers on SoundCloud. That's C-H-A-M-B-R-E-S. Caleb Fidicaro, our fantastic producer. Yes, he got a promotion. Hold your applause. <laughs> He's at Hipster Jazzbo on Twitter. Don't ask me why. Abby Hawkins, our intrepid designer. Uh, look out for great photos soon of the Climactic logo on a t-shirt, a hoodie, and a cake. <laughs> Check out her work and hire her at abigailhawkins.com. Yes. And finally, Gretchen, our key advisor and resident goat whisperer. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, folks, and we'll see you next week for our big waste special. Thanks for listening. The Climactic Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H E R E media.studio.